and welcome to this EMG Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Julianne Locke, and for this episode, we will be exploring the exciting topic of measurable residual disease, or MRD, as a prognostic factor in acute myeloid leukemia, AML. AML is the most common leukemia in adults and is associated with poor survival rates and a high risk of relapse. In this podcast, we will examine the role of determining measurable residual disease from both bone marrow and blood samples in monitoring patients not only in treatment choices, but also to predict outcomes. Improvements in technology mean that molecular analysis of disease is more accessible than ever and allows a deeper understanding of the unique nature of the disease that impacts each patient. Joining me to discuss this topic is Dr. Richard Dillon. Dr. Dillon is a consultant haematologist at Guy's Hospital in London in the UK and a clinical senior lecturer in cancer genetics at King's College London. His research focuses on using advanced molecular techniques to improve the outcomes of patients with AML. He was involved in producing the recent consensus document from the European LeukemiaNet MRD Working Group on MRD in acute myeloid leukemia. He has published over 100 international peer-reviewed papers, including work on the efficacy of some COVID-19 vaccines in allogenic stem cell transplantation recipients. He is also currently a clinical advisor to Blood Cancer UK. The information contained in this podcast is solely for healthcare professionals. This podcast is supported by Jazz Pharmaceuticals, who have had an input in the topic and final editorial review. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individual speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of Jazz Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Dillon, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, and I'm really happy that you find it as interesting as I do. It is a really interesting topic, so I think we should probably start off by laying some of the vital groundwork. So there's going to be a lot of acronyms used in this podcast. So I think we really should start off with a definition of one that has recently changed. So MRD, it used to refer to minimal residual disease, but this has been updated now to be the abbreviation for measurable residual disease. Firstly, what is it? And secondly, why have we changed the definition? Yes, sure. So I think it's worth actually going back even further and thinking about um, how we used to assess um, AML patients before we had these techniques. So when I started, um, what we used to do is once the patient had had um, some intensive chemotherapy, we would examine their bone marrow under the microscope and we would have a little counter where we'd press the button for all the different cell types and we count about up to 500 cells and work out how many immature looking cells there were. And if there was less than 5%, the patient was called to be in remission. Now, actually, if you work it out and and do the maths, if you're in remission, um, say you have 4% uh, blasts um, in in the bone marrow, you could have actually billions and billions of leukemia cells in your body, or you could have none at all. And so this is where um, the development of um, what was previously called minimal residual disease and now called measurable residual disease techniques comes in. So this is trying to use more uh, sort of more advanced platforms than just using the, the microscope alone um, to try and more accurately assess the, um, the, the, the proportion of leukemia cells that remain in the person after the treatment. So it tries to use techniques that are more specific to the leukemia um, and they're kind of broadly um, grouped into two different types. 
The first one uses molecular biology techniques to look for molecular abnormalities that are leukemia specific. And the other type of techniques, uh, the other kind of group of techniques uh, uses flow cytometry. So for, for people that don't know what flow cytometry is, and of course many of your listeners will know this already, but it's a technique where uh, cells are stained with antibodies, but those antibodies themselves are also labelled with fluorescent dyes, and they're run through a machine that can detect those dyes using a laser. And uh, using a combination of different lasers and optical filters, um, the, the combination of proteins on any, the surface of any given cell can be determined. Um, so leukemia cells, both they have ab abnormal molecular features, but they also have abnormal cell surface uh, protein expression. And either of those really can be used to differentiate um, leukemia, residual leukemia cells from um, normal healthy bone marrow cells. So essentially, we can apply these techniques in order to get a much more accurate assessment of how many leukemia cells are left in, in the patient after treatment, which gives us a really good idea of how well the leukemia has responded to treatment. So having said that, um, of course, even though these techniques are a lot better than using the microscope, they're still not absolutely perfect. They're still not going to be able to have a complete 100% sensitivity and specificity for the leukemia. Um, and I think this is what's kind of underlied the move um, towards calling it measurable residual disease. It kind of recognises the fact that even if the MRD test is negative, there may still be a substantial number of leukaemia cells in the patient, they're just not detectable using the techniques which are applied. And similarly, um, if the, um, the, um, the MRD test is positive, actually, it, it, the, the number of leukemia cells could be really quite substantial. It, it, they wouldn't have to be, uh, and the, the word minimal kind of implies that the numbers of cells left behind are extremely small, which is also not the case. So I think both of those things have underlied the kind of the, the, the move to call it measurable residual disease, which is probably a more accurate term. I mean, is the same technique suitable for all types of cancers and all types of acute myeloid leukemias? Well, actually, um, certainly not for all types of cancers, but uh, even within the disease um, AML, it's a very um, heterogeneous disease um, and actually probably encompasses several different diseases, uh, all of which have different disease biology. Um, and so really the answer to your question is we can't use um, a single MRD test for um, all patients with AML. In some types of hematological malignancies, this is possible. Um, so, for example, in CLL and other lymphoid malignancies, it's much more straightforward to apply a single one-size-fits-all test. Um, but actually, in AML, there isn't a single abnormal cell surface protein expression, for example, that you could apply to all patients. And there isn't a single molecular abnormality that you can apply to all patients. So it's really a question of establishing the uh, patient's baseline molecular but also cell surface protein expression profile and working out what will be the best um, target in order to monitor their MRD most robustly um, over, over the time of their treatment. And I guess that's probably why this consensus document has been needed from the Leukemia Net MRD working group. And I suppose, would you really say that clinicians should be communicating with their lab colleagues to make sure the right techniques are being used and that everybody, I suppose, understands what's available to a clinician and what labs need to do as well to give the best possible informed result? 
Yes, absolutely. And um, I think it's really, really important that lab scientists and, and clinicians and, and laboratory haematologists maintain a continuous dialogue, discussing every single patient and making sure that the appropriate, um, whether it is a flow assay or a molecular assay, is applied to a particular patient. The uh, field is getting more and more complex. That really represents advances in both treatment and monitoring, but it, uh, which is great in terms of improvements in patient care. But what it does mean is it's much too difficult for, for a single clinician to keep um, to track of all the developments. So I think that that dialogue between different um, subspecialties of, of the discipline is super important in terms of making sure that we've got the exact right monitoring plan for every single patient. Exactly. Clinicians can't keep everything in their head all the time, much and all as, as you might try. I suppose that's why things like this podcast and the consensus documents are always going to be helpful in that continuous learning. Let's go back a little bit now to AML, acute myeloid leukemia. So in this podcast, we're going to focus on the role of MRD and what it can do for clinicians in treating patients with acute myeloid leukemia. So why might the determination of MRDs be particularly useful in AML patients? There's a few reasons for this, the first of which is that the um, survival outcomes for AML are really, really um, not as good as many other haematological cancers. So for many patients with lymphoma, for example, the majority of those patients can expect to be cured from their disease. With AML, if we look at the survival rates on population level, actually the, the, the survival rate is relatively low and we don't see a huge increase over time as well. Um, so it's a very aggressive disease. And, and, and the other thing about AML is that the treatments are also extremely aggressive. So thinking about intensive chemotherapy, these are extremely unpleasant treatments with a proportion of patients dying from infection during the course of their treatment. And when we think about um, the most intensive treatment that we do for AML, which is um, allogeneic stem cell transplant, this um, treatment not only has short-term toxicity, but it also has um, long-term side effects, um, including graft-versus-host disease, that can cause long-term disability in patients. So we're dealing with a very aggressive disease, but we also have uh, very aggressive treatments. And we really need to be able to match the exact right treatment uh, with the patient's disease in order to get the best outcomes. So as you as you kind of alluded to in your question, yes, there are um, several different uh, molecularly defined subgroups of AML, and they all behave very differently. So um, you'll be aware about the uh, ELN a leukemia classification that was produced in 2017, which defines a number of uh, disease subentities, such as those defined by fusion genes or particular gene mutations. And to an extent, that allows us to make um, prognostic uh, predictions about patients. But however, even within those particular subgroups, patients have there's a there's a really great uh, heterogeneity in terms of um, response to treatment. That's not really captured by um, upfront diagnostics such as um, next generation sequencing panels. And it's largely unexplained, actually. And, and the only way to really capture that um, is to perform um, disease reassessment um, after treatment, of which um, MRD techniques give the most accurate um, idea of response to treatment. And they provide very powerful prognostic information, even within these uh, molecularly defined subgroups. 
And are there particular patients who clinicians really struggle to treat? And is that down to, to a phenotype of that type of patient? So maybe age or, or, or lifestyle or gender? Or is there particular molecular signatures that are trickier to treat than others? Well, there are definitely some molecular subgroups that are very difficult to treat. Um, and so th- there's these, uh, these uh, patients with mutations in TP53 and complex carrier type, and also patients with uh, MECOM rearrangements involving chromosome 3 that are extremely difficult to treat. Um, And actually, it's not those cases where um, MRD is most helpful, actually. So MRD, uh, so in the other molecularly defined subgroups, uh, some patients will do very well with uh, standard treatment, but some patients will also do very badly. Um, And most of that kind of heterogeneity is not really captured um, in in any other way. Uh, So I would say, there certainly are um, groups of patients where MRD is very useful in, in terms of fine-tuning the patient and uh, get, get, getting the best outcome for those patients. But those patients are not necessarily readily identifiable in advance. It's only once you've started treating them, actually, um, that you know that uh, a patient has a particularly difficult case. And I guess that really highlights the heterogeneity of acute myeloid leukemia as a whole, as a disease that, you know, it really varies an awful lot between patient to patient. So you've been treating a patient, you've then carried out MRD analysis, and this this patient is MRD negative. What might that tell you about their likelihood of relapse or overall survival? What kind of information do you as a clinician get from an MRD result? So that, that that's a really good question, and, and it's obviously good news for the patient because it means we can there's no we can't detect um, any evidence of disease using a sensitive technique. But of course, the prognostic implication of that result will depend at the time point at which it's taken. And a very large number of uh, clinical trials have been performed to try and establish the uh, prognostic relevance of MRD um, at different time points. And these were kind of summarised and encapsulated in the recent publication from the European Leukaemia Network, uh, which makes certain recommendations for particular disease subtypes based on MRD readings at particular time points. So one example would be for patients with um, NPM1 mutated leukaemia. So that's one of the commonest molecular subtypes. And it's one of those kinds which... um, that I was kind of trying to um, describe earlier, where some of the patients will do extremely well, even with relatively um, uh, small amounts of treatment. And some of the patients, their disease just behaves very, very, in a very, very difficult way um, and just refuses to be eliminated uh, for whatever reason. So if we um, got a negative MRD test from uh, a patient after the second course of chemotherapy, um, we know from the AML17 study that their risk of relapse um, is relatively low. It's less than 25%. And for that reason, um, it would mean they wouldn't have to undergo a bone marrow transplant um, in first remission. The advantage for the patient is that they would be spared from all of the short and long-term side effects which are associated with associated with bone marrow transplantation, some of which can cause um, long, long-term, serious long-term health issues. Um, so that, um, for, that, for, for that patient, that would be the, the, the advantage of that. And likewise, I presume an MRD positive result might give you an indication that maybe a treatment isn't working as well as it could. Does that guide your decision then in terms of maybe new treatment approaches to try with a patient or also maybe identifying if 
somebody has a particular subtype of leukemia that's just a bit more stubborn than others. Yes, so that's so that's right. So it does give you an indication um, that the leukemia is behaving more aggressively than normal, and we would know from clinical trial data sets that that predicts um, a greater risk of relapse and a greater risk of leukemia-associated death. But however, the key thing now is um, we have that information and we can um, then intervene in order to hopefully improve the prognosis. And this is really where our focus is going to have to be over the next few years in uh, both of all, both first of all, identifying and then rigorously testing um, interventions for patients who are um, MRD positive in order to try and you know, bring their outcomes up to the same level as MRD negative patients. And that would be the kind of vision um, from many in the field for the next five to 10 years. And we've started to um, generate some early data on various treatments in this situation. Um, but all the studies at the moment are at a fairly early stage. I think we'll definitely have a wee chat later on about the, the future of this research. But let's go back to December last year. So the European Leukemia Net MRD Working Group published this great consensus document, and I recommend everybody read it if you're working in the field. So I think it's quite important that we break that down here in, in more detail where we can. So let's start with an overview of when is it clinically useful to assess measurable residual diseases and how should clinicians be interpreting the results? Uh, yes, so th um, thanks for highlighting the ELN document. Um, so as you know, that there was uh, the, uh, uh, an ELN uh, M AML MRD um, guidance document was first published a few years ago. And since then, a number of clinical trials have provided some uh, really informative uh, results in terms of what the prognosis is for patients who test MRD positive or negative uh, through various modalities at, at different time points. And in the ELN, that uh, we felt that this ought to be um, trying, we ought to try and encapsulate some of this information in an updated guideline that could give practical guidance um, to clinicians in terms of what um, is the kind of bare minimum they should be doing in terms of MRD monitoring, what should be considered standard of care and what should be considered more investigational. So would you like me to go into some of the details of that document? I think it would be really useful for the listeners if we do go into it in some detail because it is quite a complex document and it, while it's very, very useful, I think it would be quite good if we could break it down a bit. Sure. So the document is essentially dividing patients into those that should be monitored using molecular methodologies and those that should be monitored by flow cytometry. Now, as a general rule, molecular methodologies are more sensitive um, than um, flow cytometry based methods. So when a patient has a robust uh, molecular marker, then that should be used in preference than the uh, flow cytometry test. But we also have to consider very carefully um, what is a robust molecular marker um, in, in view of the fact that there's a huge amount of molecular heterogeneity um, in these conditions that we don't fully understand at the moment. So, uh, and this is a consensus document from kind of experts of the, in the field around the world. And I, I think that uh, every, in, in the end that everybody agreed with um, these recommendations. And the recommendation was that for patients with uh, NPM1 mutation, or for core binding factor AML, so that means patients with inversion 16 or TA21 translocation, or those that have APL characterized by the PML-RRR fusion, these are stable leukemia-specific markers 
that are robust in terms of their applicability for MRD assessment. And these should be, so those patients with those particular subtypes of disease should be recommended for molecular monitoring. On the other hand, uh, you'll probably be aware that um, next generation sequencing techniques and, and uh, other techniques have been developed for a range of other mutations um, in AML and these have been, there have been quite a number of publications on these in the last few years. But at the moment, the panel um, didn't think that they should be recommended uh, for, for use as MRD tests on their own because there still remains quite a few issues uh, with these um, NGS and single mutation um, MRD tests other than the ones I've mentioned. And the kind of issues that there are uh, are to do with the molecular complexity of AML. Uh, so, um, it, when, when we have a, a patient that's diagnosed with AML, that um, cancer has actually been developing probably for a period of uh, months or years. And those are the mutations in, in that leukemia have gradually accumulated. And so they haven't all occurred at the same time. Uh, and, and once we treat the patient, um, so first of all, not all of the cells will have all of the mutations in. So we could have a situation uh, where a particular mutation is only in about 5 to 10%, say, of the leukemia cells we treat the patient. If we're then monitoring that mutation and it goes away, it doesn't necessarily mean the disease has completely gone away. And then the second situation that can happen is that uh, the leukemia has kind of evolved from a pre-leukemic state. And once we treat the leukemia, uh, the pre-leukemic state persists, uh, which means that one or more of the mutations from the leukemia uh, may persist and the patient's in complete remission. And this is a phenomenon that is very, very frequently observed. So um, I could comment perhaps about the um, IDH mutations. Um, we quite often see IDH mutations in patients with NPM1 mutated leukemia. And uh, where, wherever we've tracked um, the NPM mutation, it's gone away. We quite often see that the IDH mutation still persists. And we've got patients that have uh, be, we've been testing positive for the IDH mutation in complete remission for many years after they've treat, been treated and not relapsed. And the same is true for a number of other mutations, particularly the ones that spring to mind would be DNMT3A which seems to persist in the majority of patients after treatment. So at the moment, although um, the NGS type techniques um, are likely to be very useful in the future, at the moment, the panel didn't feel that there was sufficient clinical information about which mutations should be monitored and what the prognostic implications would be. So that's really an area where further research is needed, probably from large prospective clinical studies. So to summarise my very long-winded answer, um, those patients that have a robust molecular marker, NPM1, core binding factor translocations, or APL, they should be monitored by molecular methods, and the remaining patients should be monitored by flow cytometric techniques at the present time, and next-generation sequencing-based technologies may be a very important um, component of their monitoring the future, uh, but at the moment it's not suitable for use as a single methodology. And I think that's really an important point, actually, that we can't just blanket search for all mutations, essentially, that are, are there in, in cells. A, because you may have different mutations in different cells, but also, as you were saying, while you might see, you know, a negative MRD result for one mutation, you might still find another mutation present. I suppose 
that's quite an important point. Of course, the consensus document isn't just telling us how to check for MRD status. We really need to interpret the results that we're presented with from the lab. So how do you interpret the results and what does the consensus document say about that? Oh, yeah. Um, thanks, Judy, for bringing that up because it's a really important point. Um, so actually, I'm afraid it gets even more complicated. So as well as the different subtypes of leukemia needing different um, different approaches to measuring the MRD, actually the results have different implications as well, depending on the molecular subtype. So we've tried to present that um, kind of in a, a fairly straightforward way um, in, in the um, ELN guidance document. Um, but essentially, there are, there, there are there's some important differences between the subtypes, which I wonder if we should go through them briefly. Yeah, I think it would be really useful to go through them because, you know, some people do get a bit blinded by molecular genetics. It can be quite confusing with so many different subtypes. So perhaps the most straightforward one is um, MPM1 mutation. And we've talked about that earlier in terms of selecting out high-risk patients at early time points. Um, and you'll see on the guidance document that uh, uh, um, MRD uh, test after two cycles of treatment is recommended because that's the time point that's been shown by multiple trial groups to be the most predictive of outcome. Um, and you'll also see um, that it's recommended to check the bone marrow at the end of treatment. Now, our group and a number of others as well has shown that there's a proportion of patients with MPM leukemias that actually still have a positive MRD test in the bone marrow uh, at the end of treatment. And you would think um, kind of intuitively that that would mean that there were a high risk of relapse. But, uh, our, but, but both uh, we and others have followed these patients now uh, for several years without any intervention. And we find that relapse occurs in uh, less than half of those patients who are MRD positive at the end of treatment. And in the other half, the uh, MRD either persists at a very low level or actually it just spontaneously converts to negativity. So um, this is also mentioned in the document. Um, and I think that's really important to flag up because um, pe uh, people might actually um, see that end of treatment positive result and they might uh, actually overreact to that um, which could potentially uh, put patients at risk of having unnecessary treatment so that's one point that we've tried to bring up and that's even more relevant actually to the uh, next group of leukemias which is the core binding factor leukemias so it's been known for quite a long time that a proportion of the core binding factor leukemias have um, MRD positivity at the end of treatment and this can be seen actually in both the blood and the bone marrow and it can be at fairly high levels and um, it doesn't actually indicate um, that the patient's going to do badly in fact um, there, there are certain thresholds that were defined um, in the um, uh, UK AML15 study and in, in the German SAL group study um, showing um, that patients who remained MRD positive but stayed below a certain threshold, actually did very well with a very low relapse risk in spite that they remained MRD positive. So again, this is something really important for doctors to be aware about because they might see a positive MRD result on a core binding factor patient who remember they're in the favorable risk group and think that they ought to be referred for, for transplant, for example. Uh, but in fact, um, um, we need to be able to take the results in context and be aware about what the relevant thresholds are in terms of triggering uh, treatment actions. And um, I think that's really important for doctors to be aware about just to make sure they avoid over-treating their patients. 
Yeah, it's quite important there that we don't overtreat and also not causing undue harm or even undue anxiety to a patient if not communicating properly what an MRD result might mean. So you have extensive real world experience using measurable residual disease testing with your patients in London. Can you give me some of the examples of maybe clinical decisions that you've made and the outcomes that your patients have had where you have used MRDs? Oh, yeah, sure. So um, we've been um, running uh, MRD testing for for, um, more than 10 years now, uh, both for patients in trials, but also there's been increasing uh, interest in doing this on patients who are treated in standard of care protocols. So I, I can think of lots of examples where um, the uh, um, MRD has been really useful in terms of personalising the patient's treatment. So um, one case that springs to mind, I had a, a patient with uh, core binding factor AML a few years ago um, who was a, a, a young lady um, with a young family um, and presented with quite um, dr- in a, quite a dramatic situation. She'd kind of been very busy with work and family and and um, the leukemia kind of, she the leukemia tends to have quite non-specific symptoms and she'd um uh, she, so by the time she presented she had a very high white blood cell count and she actually had extramedullary uh, involvement as well so we um we, we obviously treated her and I, our lab was monitoring her mrd and this is one of these uh, c- c- cases where um the MRD went down very quickly, um, and by the end of treatment, although it was still positive, it was well below um, the thresholds that have been set by um, the various clinical trials that we've mentioned. So I think the really important thing to point out about that is, although you can place patients into risk groups by um, checking the MRD status at various time points, it's, you're not going to predict exactly what's going to happen in every patient. So even if a patient is MRD negative or low at the end of treatment, their risk of relapse is not zero. But they still have, a, depending on the exact molecular subtype and the type of treatment they have, they will still have a kind of non-trivial risk of relapse. So I think the really important thing uh, with those patients um, is to at least consider doing sequential monitoring. And this is um, suggested in the ELM guideline. And the the schedule for this varies uh, according to the molecular subtype. But you'll see if you look in the document that for patients with core binding factor, we should actually be monitoring their peripheral blood, uh, perhaps monthly, because the kinetics of response could be really high. Now, in this patient, um, actually, about three months into her follow-up, one of the uh, MRD tests that we did on her monthly peripheral bloods came back strongly positive with a big jump from the previous sample. And we went on and reassessed her bone marrow and it again showed a big jump of two logs in her MRD level, satisfying the European uh, Leukemia Network criteria for molecular progression. So what we know about patients that meet the, the, the ELN criteria for molecular progression or relapses that they are extremely likely to relapse with a very short t- within a very short time interval. But she was still in remission and she was healthy. Um, so we were able to um, take, uh, deliver salvage therapy and transplant relatively uneventfully. And she remained well through the whole procedure. And everything went very well then uh, for a further, um, about a, a year and a half. Um, and um, I still think I think this this story actually kind of highlights the need for keep doing MRD monitoring post transplant. So we can keep doing 
uh, MRD monitoring alongside all the other standard post-transplant tests like chimerism um, and uh, viral PCRs. So we yeah, do that as standard for all the patients that have had a bone marrow transplant, which is clearly the reason they've had a transplant is they've got high-risk disease in the first place. Um, and we um, actually detected a positive MRD um, on this patient actually um, about 18 months post-transplant. Now, at that point, we were able to actually, um, she remained in, in, she remained very well, she remained in hematological remission, um, but on reassessing the bone marrow, uh, molecular relapse was confirmed. So just to remind your listeners, how do we confirm a molecular relapse? That's a two consecutive positive MRD tests with a one log rise between the two samples having in a patient that's previously tested negative. And we know for those patients that uh, a, a relapse is uh, inevitable and imminent. But we were able to actually intervene uh, in that patient uh, in order to prevent the relapse by giving actually uh, donor lymphocyte infusions, which has been shown to be very, very effective uh, treatment for MRD relapse. Um, that brought the MRD levels down, but it didn't render them negative. Um, but we were there, uh, uh, and, and once we'd exhausted the donor lymphocyte infusion, that we were able to give further therapies in order to um, boost the immune system in order to um, eventually um, the patient has become MRD negative uh, and has actually come off all treatment and is doing extremely well without any long-term side effects. It's a really great outcome, isn't it? And I suppose to other clinicians who are listening, what sort of um, advice would you give them in regards to the type of conversations you should be having with your patients, um, you know, to explain to them how you interpret the results or any maybe tips or tricks? So any sort of technical aspects that you think are important for other clinicians to consider or what about pediatric patients? OK, so there's a there's a few questions in there. First of all, kind of practical tips for clinicians. Um, I would just say it's a very complex area just take your time and if you're not completely sure take advice um, and uh, make sure that um, you've, you've kind of interpreted these results correctly before you have any kind of discussion with the patient or even consider initiating any treatment um, i think the second thing i would say to clinicians is that you never act on a single result because the these techniques are very sensitive and, and the kind of other side of that coin is that they're very prone to, uh, you know, to contamination, false positives. Um, there could also be issues such as swap tube or, you know, mislabeled samples. So it, um, it's really important to, um, I mean, and, and this is also emphasized in the guidance, actually, we never make a... Um, diagnosis on on the basis of a single result make sure before you're taking any action that you you um, have uh, one of the uh, fulfilled the criteria in the ELN for either molecular progression or molecular relapse or high risk molecular status and uh, the other question you asked me was in terms of pediatrics um, I think the um, the evident, because uh, AML is, is much rarer in children than adults, um, the, um, it is much more difficult. So the, the ELN recommendations only apply to adults. It is much more difficult to make recommendations at this point in children, just because the, the pediatric AML is much rarer. We across the world, a number of uh, large clinical studies are being performed to try and, and gather the evidence base for the use of MRD 
um, pediatric AML. But at the moment, the kind of recommendations are very much just at the level of expert advice. So I would just, I mean, for pediatricians will well know this, but, but the way they tend to operate is they have kind of national meetings to discuss complex cases here that everybody's kind of opinion is taken into account. Um, perhaps that's a model we should be following more for complex adult cases as well. Indeed, it's a very good suggestion. I suppose that was really what I wanted as well. I wanted tips and tricks for people who maybe are looking at this. And this is particularly because MRD, it's still an emerging technology and there are still lots and lots of unanswered questions. So what do you think some of the big challenges are and what excites you most about the future of this field? Well, I agree. It is a very exciting field. Um, so there's, there are definitely some key challenges. You'll have probably got the impression uh, from, from our discussion, but uh, we, we're really at quite an early time point. There's been a lot of work done um, to define uh, prognostically important uh, time points and thresholds. Um, and we have all of those facts and figures. Um, but what we don't have is really very good data at the moment on um, interventions. So what we, I mean, there, there were, the only point in doing any of this is would be is if we can make a difference to the patient's outcome. There's not really much point in just being able to say, you've got a high risk of relapse. You need to, there would only be any point in doing that if we can actually be able to step in and reduce that risk. So I think the first area where, which is a challenge, but it's a, a kind of a very exciting challenge actually, is defining um, effect what are the effective um, MRD guided therapies um, and these are likely to differ quite substantially in different AML subgroups and in different um, kind of MRD situations yeah and there is there's quite a large number of uh, early phase studies um, ongoing at the moment looking at uh, for example FLT3 inhibitors immunotherapies and other novel agents uh, in the MRD positive setting and actually I think we could take a lesson from uh, ALL, where there are now a number of um, MRD-guided interventions that have been proven uh, to be effective and that's now part of the standard of care. So that's the first thing, is to develop the evidence base uh, for these MRD-guided interventions and to demonstrate that they improve uh, outcome in terms of uh, hard endpoints, including uh, overall survival. And then the second thing that we really need to be able to do is to try and um, unpick a bit more the fine detail um, of uh, the, the uh, this situation to try and uh, add a bit more uh, detail and depth to these guidelines. So uh, the, at the moment, the guideline lists the particular subtypes of, of AML, but actually, even within um, those uh, broad categories, there will be patients with different molecular profiles. I'd just like to give the example um, in MPM1 mutated leukemia, there's a particular subgroup uh, which has mutations in FLT3 ITD and DNMT3A. And we know that generally those patients do pretty badly. What we don't know is if that could be ameliorated if they have a negative MRD test. And those kind of questions, because they're involving subgroups of subgroups, they actually need very large um, data sets in order to be able to answer them. And I imagine that in order to try and answer those kind of questions and fine tune uh, the detail around the MRD guidance, we're going to have to have a lot of international collaboration, data sharing, and uh, uh, and, and, and uh, collaborative studies in order to try and to provide a little more detail uh, on exactly how we should be using um, MRD techniques in terms of uh, the everyday clinical practice.
And the third uh, thing that's really exciting is that clinical trials now are, are now more and more uh, using uh, incorporating MRD routinely. So um, almost all clinical trials um, investigating investigating new drugs will incorporate um, MRD as a secondary endpoint. But we're starting to see the development of studies now that use MRD as a primary endpoint. And the reason that's exciting is um, that it would um, significantly speed up the time uh, taken for the trial to read out uh, and potentially allowing um, new drugs to get approved earlier. Of course, the disadvantage of that is that we don't clearly yet have a link uh, between the MRD status and the survival outcome, uh, which is generally accepted. And this is something that is being worked on by uh, a number of uh, co cooperative groups. It would also be, I'm also re really uh, interested to see the development of, of trials which actually build in MRD directed questions. So, for example, in large cooperative group studies, uh, testing different induction and consolidation regimens, which is the kind of classical large AML trials that have been conducted mainly in Europe, it would be really nice to see the incorporation of a particular MRD guided question, uh, guide, intervention guided questions as part of those studies in order to try and again to develop the evidence base for MRD guided interventions and show um, their, their effects on outcome. It really is a very interesting and growing field and we've come a long way from counting and looking at cells under a microscope now to being able to use much more molecular guided techniques, um, really helping us to, I suppose, helping all clinicians to understand the molecular nature of the disease in their patients and make a risk assessment early on based on MRD results during and after treatment. Thank you so much to Dr. Dillon for this fascinating discussion on the potential prognostic value of measurable disease residue determination in the treatment and risk assessment of acute myeloid leukemia patients. If you liked this podcast, remember to visit our archives for plenty of great podcasts covering many health-related topics. For now, stay safe and stay well, and I hope to have you back again very soon on the EMG Health Podcast. Bye for now. <laughs>